Good morning. Good morning. Whoa, that was good. My name is Norma Farthing, and I am a member of the teaching team here at Grace. It's a genuine blessing to be able to sit down with those godly men and women at a really ungodly hour <laughs> and discuss God's words together. And I uh, am so excited about what we're doing this week. Thankful that you're here. So what is special about this year? Why is 2017 unique? Well, come October, Halloween to be exact, much of the world will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Truth is, a lot of really rebellious stuff took place in the church before that and long after that. But October 31st, 1517 is the date when Martin Luther is supposed to have nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. And so that's generally considered the beginning of the Reformation. When Luther was tried for heresy later, one of the principal charges against him was his insistence on salvation by grace alone. Sola gratia. Where did Luther come up with that idea? He got it and a lot of other of those alone ideas from Paul's letter to the Galatians. It is my book, he wrote. I am wedded to it. And he wrote a massive commentary on Galatians that many still consider to be the definitive word on Christian liberty. Imagine a book that changes the course of history. Now imagine a book in the Bible so powerful it can change you and this community of faith at 2828 crossover. That's what I'll be praying these next three weeks as we study Galatians. I urge you to sit down with it and read it through often the way a letter should be read because Galatians is not really a book, it's a letter. Luther wrote books, Paul wrote letters. It is from those letters that we get most of our Christian theology and much of our understanding of the New Testament, even the Gospels, which were written many years after Paul wrote his letters. We think of Paul as a missionary, a theologian, a writer of half the New Testament, but Paul didn't sit down to write the New Testament. Most of the New Testament is actually a collection of other people's mail. Paul wrote letters, and he pretty much made stuff up as he went along, literally inventing theology with his pen. That's especially true of Galatians. 
because it's his first book, first letter, and therefore foundational to everything else in the New Testament. And Galatians argues, the driving argument in Galatians is that salvation is a gift of God's grace, grace and it has nothing whatever to do with what we do. Nobody has to work for it, to get it, or to keep it. And remember, Galatians is a subversive book. A Christian manifesto, if you will. Three weeks from today, we hope you will be ready to join the revolution. So let's dig in. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, join us. Show us Jesus. Let us leave here changed in his name. Amen. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among the, uh, my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Okay. I promised John I wouldn't do this, but I have to do this. He was, ple <laughs> he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Y'all, this is the core of what we're talking about today. What does it take to please God? How do we please God? What pleases God? Those are the questions. You know what pleases God? What pleases God is to reveal his son to us. If you don't hear anything else today, just hear that. It's all about Jesus. Okay, now where was I? In order, oh, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. <clears throat> it's Sunday morning. John Ray has just preached one of those compelling sermons that he's so good at. The congregation is singing just as I am. And you decide, this is it. Today's the day I commit my life to Jesus. But after church, somebody comes up to you, and he says, hey, welcome aboard. You know, John did a pretty good job today. But he left out some important stuff. 
Oh, don't worry. I will disciple you. Together we will work on what you need to do if you want to be a real Christian. Then you learn about taking showers when you touch somebody down on Dixon Street. You learn to give up pork and catfish. You ask permission to travel on Saturday. And if you're a guy, you'll get circumcised. Is that far out? Not really. Few people realize just how close we came to being that kind of a church. If it hadn't been for Paul, this church would be little more than a sect of Judaism. The first church was so thoroughly Jewish that the question of keeping the law was no problem. They just did it. They had been raised on the Torah and their heritage was precious to them. But when Gentiles began to join the church, a huge block of those Jewish believers insisted that Gentiles first become Jews and observe the law before they could be Christians. They were called Judaizers. And they turned stalking Paul into their ministry. Wherever they, Paul went, they'd show up, questioning his credentials and minimizing his gospel. Paul's not a real apostle, they argued. He didn't even know Jesus. And this easy believism stuff he preaches, it's just a way to draw crowds and make other people like him. He's a man pleaser. He's afraid to tell you the truth about what it means to be a real Christian. When I wrote that, the face that popped into my head was Colonel Jessup and a few good men. You want the truth. You can't stand the truth. And another one from that same film, they just messed with the wrong Marine. They just messed with the wrong apostle. Paul did know the truth. And what kept, that is indeed what kept him in the battle with the Judaizers. When the Judaizers showed up at Antioch in Syria, where Paul went to church, Paul and Barnabas were, Barnabas were already in ministry there. In fact, it was at Antioch that believers were first called Christians. Luke's comment that there was no small dissension is a gross understatement. This crisis threatened the church in ways we cannot begin to fathom. Hoping to resolve the issue, Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders there. That's the Council of Acts 15 that we studied last week. And as John pointed out, it really was a question of who's in and who's out. The council decided not to put a yoke on these new believers. 
They did not have to observe the Jewish law. And Paul probably went home thinking the storm had passed. But it wasn't long after that that the church at Antioch, led by the Holy Spirit, set aside Paul and Barnabas, ordained them, and sent them out as missionaries. On that first mission, which took about three years, they established four churches, all Gentile churches, in the Roman province of Galatia, what is now modern Turkey. It was to those churches that Paul wrote this letter, this letter that we call Galatians. The problem was, again, the Judaizers. No sooner had Paul left Galatia than men showed up telling the new believers that Paul's message was inadequate, if not downright false. They questioned his credentials, saying he could not be a true apostle because he didn't witness the resurrection of Jesus, and insisting that these Gentiles become Jews before they could be Christians. Why does that matter? Everybody in this room is a Gentile. We're all Gentiles. Paul was angry and frustrated, and his anger oozes from every word in this letter. He didn't dictate the letter either. He wrote it with his own hand. Unlike his other letters that always start with nice words, friendly greetings, Paul jumps right in, in Galatians. How could they have traded the good news of God's grace for a perverted gospel, which wasn't good news at all? I don't care if an angel from heaven preaches to you. Paul thundered. If he does not preach the good news of salvation by grace, let him be damned. I didn't say that. Paul said that. And he said it twice, just to be sure they got it. Paul knew both from experience and from training that salvation is all of grace, and he offered himself as Exhibit A. He reminded the Galatians of his former life in Judaism, his rabid persecution of the church, his zeal for tradition, his meteoric rise to fame at such an early age, his bright future. As a young rabbi persecuting the church, Paul had all the glory he could want. He was immensely intelligent, well-educated, actively engaged. The day Stephen was stoned, Paul was there. Those were Paul's credentials. Then one day, as he traveled to Damascus to arrest some more believers, God saved him and called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul had nothing whatever to do with that transaction. And in his mind, the only plausible explanation was the grace of God. What is grace? Many of us were taught God's riches at Christ's expense it's a good mnemonic. But grace is much more than that. Grace offers something totally undeserved. 
What we deserve is death. The wages of sin is death, right? Instead, we receive new birth, adoption, and an intimate relationship with the God who created us and loves us so much he sent Jesus to die for us. It is God's plan. He thought it up, and he administers it impartially, lavishly. Nobody earns grace. Nobody. So Paul understood from personal experience that salvation is a gift of grace, but he also knew it from training. After he was saved, Paul didn't go to Jerusalem or consult with anybody else. He went alone to the Arabian desert, where he studied for three years, at the feet of his new master. Notice how he identifies Jesus Christ in verse 12. Well, they took it down. In verse 12, he says, the Lord, Jesus Christ. In Paul's letters, Jesus is always Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ our Lord, or something like that. The Judaizers claimed that Paul couldn't be a real apostle because he didn't know Jesus. It's true. Paul didn't know the baby in the manger, or the humble carpenter from Galilee. But from the get-go... Their relationship was based upon the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus was Lord. Paul had a new master. And he considered it an honor and a privilege to be the slave of that master. It was his highest calling. And he took it seriously. He also had new credentials because he had seen the risen Lord. Just what? you were required to have done to be an apostle. And Jesus had commissioned him personally. Paul was as legitimately an apostle as any of the original 12. That brings us to Peter. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So the rubber hits the road. Following the Jerusalem council, where Paul thought everything had been decided, Peter came down to visit the church at Antioch. At the council, he had spoken for inclusion, and he even had his own encounter with God over the issue of discrimination. He had been eating happily with the Gentile believers until some representatives came from Pastor James in Jerusalem, whereupon Peter drew back and separated himself. Why? Because he was afraid. He was afraid of what those superstars from Jerusalem might think of him. Were those Gentiles ceremonially unclean, or were they eating foods that didn't conform to Jewish dietary laws? We don't know. But we do know that Peter's hypocrisy led other people astray, even Barnabas. And Paul confronted him to his face in front of everybody. You see what's happening here? Peter was intimidated by the luminaries from Jerusalem. But Paul was not in any way intimidated by Peter, who was, by all accounts, a bigger star than all of them. The thing that bothered Paul most was Peter's inconsistency. The word hypocrite means a stage actor, someone who wears a mask to convince an audience he is the character in a play, not himself. Sometimes Peter acted like a Jew, sometimes a Gentile. You never knew which Peter was going to show up. Yet Peter expected the Gentiles to act like Jews all the time. That made no sense to Paul. Peter, you know the truth of the gospel, he declared. Why don't you act like it? There's that phrase, the truth of the gospel. Paul's fight for Christian liberty was to preserve the truth of the gospel. Now he points out that by not eating with the Gentiles, Peter and those other Jews were not in step with the truth of the gospel. So what is the gospel? Literally, the word gospel means good news. You know that. But it's not a word Paul invented. The word was in common use. Any good news was called the gospel. I got the job. We're expecting a baby. My team won the ball game. That's the gospel. Interestingly, though, it was used when an emperor died and another emperor took the throne. Stay with me. That's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. One master died, the law. Another master took the throne, Jesus. So when Paul sat down to write Galatians, he just thought gospel was a great word. He co-opted it for his own purposes. 
He was inventing theology. What could be better news than that God loves you? That Jesus died for you? That the Holy Spirit empowers you? That's Paul's gospel in a nutshell. Then Paul introduces another term, a legal term, and he turns it into theology too. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the truth that sealed the deal for Martin Luther. Why does it matter? Because we're Protestants. No one is justified by the works of the law. We define justified as just as if I'd never sinned. But consider the implications of that. God is absolutely, perfectly righteous, holy, and pure. Even the best people look filthy in the light of his brilliant holiness, purity. And we're all sinners. We were born that way. So what are we going to do? How can we possibly have a relationship with this holy God? Well, God looks at us and just declares us righteous. You're righteous. You're righteous. You're righteous. You're righteous. That's what justification is. It doesn't mean we are righteous. For we're still sinners, but God declares us not guilty so that we can share in his life and his righteousness. Our sins are both forgiven and forgotten, and God will never, ever hold them against us. When God looks at us, he only sees Jesus. And when other people look at us, that's what they ought to see too. They ought to see Jesus. Obviously, justification by faith implies total dependence upon God's grace. It demands that we acknowledge ourselves as sinners. That's tough. That's hard to do. Acknowledge ourselves as sinners. Not other people. And it's for that reason that so many people, even some professing Christians, are not justified. We will never be challenged, may never, probably never, be challenged with the Jewish law. That's not our issue. But I assure you that Judaizers are alive and well, and they're active in the church. Not out there somewhere, but in the church. And they deny the justification by faith alone through Jesus Christ. If not by what they say, by what they do, and certainly by their attitudes. They measure spirituality by what people do or don't do. How they talk, how they dress, how they vote, who they hang out with, where they go to church, how much they give to the church, what leaders they follow, what books and blogs they read, what music they listen to, what businesses they patronize or boycott, and on and on and on ad nauseum. 
God forgive us. One of my favorite writers is Anne Lamott. But I have friends who think that Anne Lamott is not a Christian because she sometimes calls God Howard and uses swear words. If you've ever read her stuff, you know what I'm talking about. Seriously. They miss her brilliant uh, insight and her piercing wisdom over that. I know Christians who would not participate in Holy Communion if they were visiting here today because we don't restrict who comes to our table. Christians who are terrified of ecumenical gatherings and would be horrified to know I attend a church that shares its building with a bunch of Anglicans. They'll, they'll probably know it now because they'll hear the podcast, right? We impose our standards of righteousness upon other people, playing God in a role that is solely God's. Faith in Jesus satisfies God, but it won't satisfy us. The result is spiritual snobbery. And anyone can fall prey to it. Just ask Peter. Justification by faith eliminates spiritual snobbery. It's okay. Why? <laughs> there are no degrees of justification. Nobody is more justified than somebody else. That's what Peter forgot. Peter thought that by being a Jew, he was better than his Gentile brothers and sisters. And the truth is that all of them, including Peter, were sinners justified by faith in Jesus. And to Paul, Peter's spiritual snobbery was as noxious as the Judaizers teaching a false doctrine. Either way, truth of the gospel was betrayed. The best way to handle that, Paul suggests, is to kill yourself. When Paul says he died to the law, he means that he no longer tries to win God's approval or the approval of other people. By obeying rules and by looking down the nose at those who don't. As a result, the law has no hold on him. He enjoys an amazing freedom to live a life devoted to God. He has been crucified with Christ. That proud, upwardly mobile, self-serving person Paul used to be is dead dead. Rather, the Christ who lives in him now directs and empowers all that he is and all that he does. And no longer bound by a set of impossible rules, Paul is yielded to Christ's indwelling spirit and is at last 
pleasing to God. He'll have a lot more to say about that the next two weeks. I alluded to communion. We're going to celebrate communion. We're also going to take up an offering. That's part of who we are and what we do. Uh, these offerings support our ministries and uh, other things related to our being a body of Christ here in Fayetteville. And we also celebrate communion. John Ray left us with the question last week, who's in and who's out? Well, I can answer that. We're all in. This is the Lord's table. It is not our table. Everyone is equal and everyone is welcome. We celebrate an open communion. As we prepare our hearts for communion, let us remember how on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took the cup, blessed it, gave it to his disciples, and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant that was poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins. As often as you do this, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you for being here. It's time to come to the table.